Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture and civilization. Brought to you by the Martins Centre with Frederico Reo. Hello everyone, welcome to this new episode of Europe Out Loud, our podcast series. I would like to start uh, with a little announcement. I am pleased to say that we were awarded as the best digital channel of 2018 by the Digital Communication Awards. We are, of course, very pleased with this result. I take the occasion to particularly remember my colleague who was the initiator of this uh, podcast series, Jose Luis Fontalba, former head of communications of the Martin Center, who recently passed away. Without him, this podcast would not exist. He was an artist, and his uh, vision was that we should bring a little bit of art, culture, history in discussions of European problems that are often coached in a very technocratic and dry language. The topic of today's podcast is a contribution to the debate, the heated debate, on uh, uh, the drivers of anti-establishment populism. As often with the podcast series, it it tries to explore a specific uh, viewpoint on this topic. And that's a concept uh, that only in recent months has become uh, more prominent and mainstream, although we at the Martin Center have been exploring it for for some time, for a couple of years. It's the idea of liberal overreach meaning the idea that part of what we are witnessing with the rise of anti-establishment populism is a reaction, is a backlash against certain excesses of liberalism since the 1990s. The issue became prominent thanks to a recent book by Jan Zielonka of Oxford University, significantly entitled Counter-Revolution, Liberal Europe in Retreat, the title already assumes that this is a counter-revolution that follows a revolution and reacts to it. The structure of the podcast is very simple. I will briefly illustrate four examples of liberal overreach, what I consider liberal overreach, and I will draw some conclusions from them for contemporary political debates and the 2019 European elections. The first example of liberal overreach I would like to consider is the rise of an aggressive liberalism in foreign policy since the 1990s, but most strikingly in the first decade of this century. This is a political agenda that is normally associated with the neoconservative movement in the United States and the administration of George W. Bush, but it is in no way confined to to this. And in fact, it is not, strictly speaking, conservative, I would claim that it is much more liberal. Neoconservatism in the 1960s already was famously defined as liberalism muddied by reality. And I think that there are many liberal, uh, it, it is essentially about an aggressive promotion of liberal democratic institutions abroad based on the assumption that this is the, the only rightful and universally applicable way of ruling human affairs. Examples of it, some of them are obvious, certainly the Iraqi invasion of 2001 and the overthrow of uh, Saddam Hussein. Uh, more recently, and under a non-neoconservative uh, American administration, of course, some Europeans were in the lead, we know, the overthrow of uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya in 2011, to an extent, even the slightly naive belief that um, the Egyptian spring could, after the overthrow of uh, Mubarak, bring about 
fully democratized, westernized Egypt was part of this liberal delusion. Now, we rather put this into historical context a bit and remember that although liberalism is normally associated with the foreign policy of peace, of tolerance, of commerce, which certainly are important motives of liberal foreign policy in the last two centuries, there is a very strong stream or understream at least, of aggressive liberalism, of liberal thinking that promotes the aggressive export of liberal values, if necessary, by arms. A first obvious example is certainly the wars of the French Revolution between the end of the 18th century and the beginning of the 19th century. These were wars to export revolutionary principles in throughout the continent and overthrow the traditional monarchies of Europe. A second very neglected but very interesting example is actually 19th century liberal imperialism. We tend to forget but it was liberals, not conservatives, who were in the, the driving force behind Europe's ex expansion overseas. And their defense of imperialism was actually based on liberal principles. It was the notion that the advanced enlightened nations of Europe had the responsibility to free the underdeveloped and exploited countries of Africa and Asia from their tyrannical backward yoke. So there was a strong liberal drive behind that movement. And finally, in the 20th century, Wilsonianism, certainly liberal Wilsonianism and its program after the First World War to make the world safe for democracy, bringing about the collapse of traditional multinational empires in Central Europe, was another example of aggressive liberal foreign policy. The second example of liberal over rich is the rise of what I try to call in a descriptive way a liberal progressive identity politics. This is, to be clear, what now goes by the name of political correctness. This is a creature of the American, mostly American campuses of the 1960s and 70s, but it became particularly prominent as of the 1990s once more. It is an interesting twist and evolution of progressive liberalism uh, liberalism is essentially about individual freedom and here you have instead a movement that develops from liberalism but whose main target is the defense of the rights of supposedly oppressed minorities. Minorities that are considered as a group and whose individual identity derives from membership somehow into this group. Women, the LGBT community, racial minorities, all groups which are very diverse in their internal structure, but in the, in the politically correct version of them become relatively cohesive, oppressed minorities. This has taken in recent years, as many people will know, a rather strange and intolerant turn, especially in the, in the United States, where increasingly not only conservatives, but also some progressive, non-orthodox progressive voices have been silenced because supposedly they offended some discriminated minorities. There was a famous case which struck me last year, Richard, the Oxford zoologist, uh, Richard Dawkins, who certainly is not a conservative, is one of the leading atheists and Darwinian in the contemporary debate, was denied uh, a spot in a, in a radio show because of his remark, his remark on religion were supposedly offensive towards Muslim believers. And of course, the other side of the coin of this progressive identity politics is a certain scorn of supposedly oppressive majorities 
and on their traditional identities, the, the white majorities, let's say, of, of the most Western European countries. Example of it, there was a placard in the demonstrations against uh, Trump, the election of Trump in the United States, which I found very interesting, and it said, patriotism is racism, meaning, of course, that any form of allegiance or attachment to one's fatherland, one's roots, was criminalized and equated with racism. A third example of liberal overreach is what I call, and it is not my terminology, hyperglobalization. This is a term invented, as far as I know, by the Turkish-American political economist Danny Roderick, teaching now at Harvard, and it captures a distinction which, according to Roderick, is historically grounded between a limited globalization, which happened until roughly, again, uh, 1990, and the hyper, very advanced globalization, which developed instead after that. The limited globalization attempted to strike a balance between the needs of international economic integration and the needs to maintain a certain national, social and democratic cohesion. It was limited in the sense that, for example, it only tried to eliminate barriers to trade at the borders, not in the regulatory structures internal to states, and it also accepted a certain management of capital flows. And this was precisely to try and maximize the scope for maneuvering of national democratic majorities that could therefore better control this way uh, their economies and redress certain imbalances. Hyperglobalization instead has developed uh, starting in the 1990s, according to Roderick, was a, a rather intrusive and restrictive regime of supranational rules enshrined in the World Trade Organization, in the WTO, which made it increasingly difficult for national governments to broker tensions, let's say, between the losers and the winners of this uh, process. Of course, this is particularly relevant for the European Union, which is the most advanced and institutionalized example of hyperglobalization as defined by Roderick and possessing a common currency restricts the scope of democratic majorities to determine economic policy even further. The, the most striking example of that during the crisis was Greece. The total inability of Greek democratic majorities to determine the nature and the content of their the economic policy of their country during the crisis. The fourth and final example of liberal overreach I would like to refer to is the, a certain technocratic turn that happened, that occurred in liberalism, I think, starting in the 1990s. This is now more widely recognized, but I think the first to see that and to describe it poignantly was uh, the great Irish political scientist Peter Mayer in a book published in 2013, actually posthumously because he died while writing it, called Ruling the Void the hollowing out of Western democracy. And the, the main point of the book, there, there are several important, but for the purposes of our discussion, the main point of the book is the observation that since the 1990s, we see rising a sort of democracy without the demos, a democracy that is progressively expunged of all its participatory elements, or of many of its participatory elements, in favor of empowering non-majoritarian, let's say, technocratic 
institutions. A very striking part of this trend was the independence of central banks, for example, that took the management of monetary policy out of the hands of governments in Europe, of course, with the creation of the European Monetary Union that was particularly poignant. But also, in general, the rise of autonomous agencies, the tendency of the judiciary to adjudicate questions that in previous decades were considered highly political questions. For example, in the United States, it was the Supreme Court that introduced gay marriage in American constitutional structure. It was not the product of a democratic debate in Congress. As a cultural sort of aspect of this technocratic bent, I think it is easy to detect a certain contempt in many progressive liberal circles for democratic majorities in electoral politics. Uh, this was very evident to me after the, um, the great liberal votes of 2016 the vote for Trump, the vote for Brexit, in which, in progressive liberal circles, in which I myself, in many regards, move, people were astonished that this ignorant barbarian could vote so wrongly. So I come to my conclusions. I have maybe one thought on a possible solution that is often in history probably a third way, a middle way, would be the way of the future. We probably will need to revert to some form of conservative liberalism or liberal conservatism that while accepting and rescuing the core valid elements of a liberal worldview, the notion of individual freedom, the notion of uh, the rule of law, checks and balances, the independence of the judiciary, also reconciles liberalism with an element of rootedness, a protection of national and regional identities, a recognition of people's attachment to tradition. I would like to conclude with the words of a new world uh, liberal, Jan Zielonka, and I, part, I opened with his book, so I would like to conclude with it. Zielonka wonders in his book whether our liberal vision sufficiently accounts for people's fears and passions, collective bonds and traditions, trust, love and bigotries. And of course, in the book, he answers in the negative, and he goes on wondering, or arguing, it is not even certain that the notion of a good society and justice can be spelled out and agreed upon without a reference to a certain group of people living in a certain territory and sharing a certain historical, cultural and moral perspective, which is conservatism at its utmost. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.